Tale number two of Five Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Five Tales by John Galsworthy. Tale number two A Stoic. Equam momento rebus in arduis servare mentum. Horace. Part One. In the city of Liverpool, on a January day of 1905, the boardroom of the Island Navigation Company rested, as it were, after the labors of the afternoon. The long table was still littered with the ink, pens, blotting paper, and abandoned documents of six persons, a deserted battlefield of the brain. And, lonely in his chairman's seat at the top end, old Sylvanus Haythorpe sat, with closed eyes, still and heavy as an image. One puffy, feeble hand, whose fingers quivered, rested on the arm of his chair. The thick white hair on his massive head glistened in the light from a green-shaded lamp. He was not asleep, for every now and then his sanguine cheeks filled, and a sound, half-sigh, half-grunt, escaped his thick lips between a white moustache and the tiny tuft of white hairs above his cleft chin. Sunk in the chair, that square, thick trunk of a body, in short, black-braided coat, seemed divested of all neck. Young Gilbert Farney, secretary of the Island Navigation Company, Entering his hushed boardroom, stepped briskly to the table, gathered some papers, and stood looking at his chairman. Not more than thirty-five, with the bright hues of the optimist in his hair, beard, cheeks, and eyes, he had a nose and lips which curled ironically. For in his view he was the company, and its board did not exist to checker his importance. Five days in the week for seven hours a day, he wrote, and thought, and wove the threads of its business, and this lot came down once a week for two or three hours and taught their grandmother to suck eggs. But watching that red-cheeked, white-haired, somnolent figure, his smile was not so contemptuous as might have been expected, for after all the chairman was a wonderful old boy. A man of go and insight could not but respect him. Eighty, half paralyzed, over head and ears in debt, having gone the pace all his life, or so they said, till at last that mine in Ecuador had done for him, before the secretary's day, of course, but he had heard of it. The old chap had bought it up on spec, de laudici toujours de laudici, as he was so fond of saying, paid for it half in cash and half in promises, and then the thing had turned out empty, and left him with twenty thousand pounds worth of the old shares unredeemed. The old boy had weathered it out without a bankruptcy so far. Indomitable old duffer, and never fussy like the rest of them. Young Farney, though a secretary, was capable of attachment, and his eyes expressed a pitying affection. The board meeting had been long and snadgy, a final settling of that pillin business. 
Rum go, the chairman forcing it on them like this. And with quick satisfaction, the secretary thought, and he never would have got it through if I hadn't made up my mind that it really is good business. For to expand the company was to expand himself. Still, to buy four ships with the freight market so depressed was a bit startling, and there would be opposition at the general meeting. Never mind, he and the chairman would put it through, put it through, and suddenly he saw the old man looking at him. Only from those eyes could one appreciate the strength of life yet flowing underground in that well-nigh helpless carcass, deep-colored little blue wells, tiny, jovial, round windows. A sigh traveled up through the layers of flesh, and he said almost inaudibly, Have they come, Mr. Farney? Yes, sir. I've put them in the transfer office. Said you'd be with them in a minute. But I wasn't going to wake you. Haven't been asleep. Help me up. Grasping the edge of the table with his trembling hands, the old man pulled, and, with Farney heaving him behind, attained his feet. He stood about five feet ten, and weighed fully fourteen stone, not corpulent, but very thick all through. His round and massive head alone would have outweighed a baby. With eyes shut, he seemed to be trying to get the better of his own weight. Then he moved with the slowness of a barnacle towards the door. The secretary, watching him, thought, Marvelous old chap! How he gets about by himself is a miracle. And he can't retire, they say, lives on his fees. But the chairman was through the green baize door. At his tortoise gate he traversed the inner office, where the youthful clerks suspended their figuring, to grin behind his back, and entered the transfer office, where eight gentlemen were sitting. Seven rose, and one did not. Old Haythorpe raised a saluting hand to the level of his chest, and moving to an armchair, lowered himself into it. Well, gentlemen? One of the eight gentlemen got up again. Mr. Haythorpe, we've appointed Mr. Brownby to voice our views. Mr. Brownby? And he sat. Mr. Brownby rose, a stoutish man, some seventy years of age, with little gray side-whiskers, and one of those utterly steady faces only to be seen in England, faces which convey the sense of business from father to son for generations, faces which make wars and passion and free thought seem equally incredible, faces which inspire confidence and awaken in one a desire to get up and leave the room. Mr. Brownby rose and said in a suave voice, Mr. Haythorpe, we here represent about fourteen thousand pounds. When we had the pleasure of meeting you last July, you will re recollect that you held out a prospect of some more satisfactory arrangement by Christmas. We are now in January, and I am bound to say we none of us get younger. From the depths of old Haythorpe a preliminary rumble came travelling, reaching the surface, and materialized. Don't know about you. Feel a boy myself. The eight gentlemen looked at him. Was he going to try and put them off again? Mr. Brownby said with unruffled calm, I'm sure we're very glad to hear it. But to come to the point, we have felt, Mr. Haythorpe, and I'm sure you won't think it unreasonable, 
that um, er, bankruptcy would be the most satisfactory solution. We have waited a long time, and we want to know definitely where we stand. For, to be quite frank, we don't see any prospect of improvement. Indeed, we fear the opposite. You think I'm going to join the majority. This plumping out of what was at the back of their minds produced in Mr. Brownby and his colleagues a sort of chemical disturbance. They coughed, moved their feet, and turned away their eyes, till the one who had not risen, a solicitor named Ventner, said bluffly, Well, put it that way, if you like. Old Haythorpe's little deep eyes twinkled. My grandfather lived to be a hundred, my father ninety-six. Both of them rips. I'm only eighty, gentlemen. Blameless life compared with theirs. Indeed, Mr. Brownby said, we hope you have many years of this life before you. More of this than of another. And a silence fell, till old Haythorpe added, you're getting a thousand a year out of my fees. Mistake to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. I'll make it twelve hundred. If you force me to resign my directorships by bankruptcy, you won't get a rap, you know." Mr. Brownby cleared his throat. We think, Mr. Haythorpe, you should make it at least fifteen hundred. In that case we might perhaps consider— Old Haythorpe shook his head. We can hardly accept your assertion that we should get nothing in the event of bankruptcy. We fancy you greatly underrate the possibilities. Fifteen hundred a year is the least you can do for us. See you damned first. Another silence followed. Then Ventner, the solicitor, said irascibly, We know where we are, then. Brownby added almost nervously, Are we to understand that twelve hundred a year is your, your last word? Old Haythorpe nodded. Come again this day month and I'll see what I can do for you." And he shut his eyes. Round Mr. Brownby, six of the gentlemen gathered, speaking in low voices. Mr. Ventner nursed a leg and glowered at old Haythorpe, who sat with his eyes closed. Mr. Brownby went over and conferred with Mr. Ventner. Then clearing his throat, he said, "'Well, sir, we have considered your proposal. We agree to accept it for the moment. We will come again, as you suggest, in a month's time. We hope that you will by then have seen your way to something more substantial, with a view to avoiding what we should all regret, for which I fear will otherwise become inevitable." Old Haythorpe nodded. The eight gentlemen took their hats and went out one by one, Mr. Brownby courteously bringing up the rear. The old man, who could not get up without assistance, stayed musing in his chair. He had diddled him for the moment into giving him another month, and when that month was up, he would diddle him again. A month ought to make the pillin business safe with all that hung on it. That poor funky chap Joe Pillin! A gurgling chuckle escaped his red lips. What a shadow the fellow had looked! trotting in that evening just a month ago, behind his valet's announcement, Mr. Pillin, sir! What a parchmenty, precise, thread-paper of a chap, with his bird's claw of a hand, and his muffled-up throat and his quavery, How do you do, Sylvanus? I'm afraid you're not— First-rate, first-rate, sit down, have some port. 
port. I never drink it. Poison to me. Poison. Do you good. Oh, I know, that's what you always say. You've a monstrous constitution, Sylvanus. If I drank port and smoked cigars and sat up till one o'clock, I should be in my grave tomorrow. I'm not the man I was. The fact is, I've come to see if you can help me. I'm getting old. I'm, I'm, I'm growing nervous. You always were as chickeny as an old hen, Joe. Well, my nature's not like yours. To come to the point, I want to sell my ships and retire. I need rest. Freights are very depressed. I've got my family to think of. Crack on and go broke. Buck you up like anything. I'm quite serious, Sylvanus. Never knew you anything else, Joe. A quavering cough, and out it had come. Now, in a word, won't your island navigation company buy my ships? A pause, a twinkle, a puff of smoke. Make it worth my while. He had said it in jest, and then in a flash the idea had come to him. Rosamond and her youngsters. What a chance to put something between them and destitution when he had joined the majority. And so he said, uh, We don't want your silly ships. That claw of a hand waved in deprecation. They're very good ships, doing quite well. It's only my wretched health. If I were a strong man, I, I shouldn't dream. What do you want for them? Good Lord, how he jumped if you ask him a plain question. The chap was as nervous as a guinea fowl. Here are the figures, for the last four years. I think you'll agree that I couldn't ask less than seventy thousand. Through the smoke of his cigar, old Haythorpe had digested these figures slowly. Joe Pillin feeling his teeth and sucking lozenges the while. And then he said, Sixty thousand, and out of that you pay me ten percent if I get it through for you. Take it or leave it. My dear Sylvanus, that's almost cynical. Too good a price. You'll never get it without me. But, uh, but a commission. You could never disclose it. Arrange that, all right. Think it over. Freights'll go lower yet. Have some port. No, 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 thank you. No, so you think freights will go lower? Sure of it. Well, I'll be going. I I'm sure I don't know. It's, it's, I just must think. Think your hardest. Yes, yes, good-bye. I can't imagine how you still go on smoking those things and drinking port. See you in your grave yet, Joe. What a feeble smile the old fellow had. Laugh, he couldn't, and alone again he had browsed, developing the idea which had come to him. Though to dwell in the heart of shipping, Sylvanus Haythorpe had lived in Liverpool twenty years, he was from the eastern counties, of a family so old that it professed to despise the conquest. Each of its generations occupied nearly twice as long as those of less tenacious men. Traditionally of Danish origin, its men-folk had as a rule bright reddish-brown hair, red cheeks, large round heads, excellent teeth, and poor morals. 
They had done their best for the population of any county in which they had settled. Their offshoots swarmed. Born in the early twenties of the nineteenth century, Sylvanus Haythorpe, after an education broken by escapades both at school and college, had fetched up in that simple London of the late forties, where claret, opera, and eight percent for your money ruled a cheery roost. Made partner in a shipping firm well before he was thirty, he had sailed with a wet sheet and a flowing tide. Dancers, claret, clicquot, and piquet, a cab with a tiger, some travel, all that delicious early Victorian consciousness of nothing save a golden time. It was all so full and mellow that he was forty before he had his only love affair of any depth with the daughter of one of his own clerks, a liaison so awkward as to necessitate a sedulous concealment. The death of that girl, after three years, leaving him a natural son, had been the chief, perhaps the only real, sorrow of his life. Five years later he married. What for? God only knew, as he was in the habit of remarking. His wife had been a hard, worldly, well-connected woman, who presented him with two unnatural children, a girl and a boy, and grew harder, more worldly, less handsome in the process. The migration to Liverpool, which took place when he was sixty and she forty-two, broke what she still had of heart, but she lingered on twelve years, finding solace in bridge and being haughty towards Liverpool. Old Haythorpe saw her to her rest without regret. He had felt no love for her whatever, and practically none for her two children. They were, in his view, colorless, pragmatical, very unexpected characters. His son, Ernest, in the Admiralty, he thought a poor, careful stick. His daughter, Adela, an excellent manager, delighting in spiritual conversation and the society of tame men, rarely failed to show him that she considered him a hopeless heathen. They saw as little as need be of each other. She was provided for under that settlement he had made on her mother fifteen years ago, well before the not altogether unexpected crisis in his affairs. Very different was the feeling he had bestowed on that son of his under the rose. The boy, who had always gone by his mother's name of Larn, had on her death been sent to some relations of hers in Ireland. He had been called to the Dublin bar, and married, young, a girl half Cornish and half Irish. Presently, having cost old Haythorpe in all a pretty penny, he had died impecunious, leaving his fair Rosamond at thirty with a girl of eight and a boy of five. She had not spent six months of widowhood before coming over from Dublin to claim the old man's guardianship. A remarkably pretty woman, like a full-blown rose with greenish-hazel eyes, she had turned up one morning at the offices of the Island Navigation Company, accompanied by her two children, for he had never divulged to them his private address. And since then they had always been more or less on his hands occupying a small house in a suburb of Liverpool. He visited them there, but never asked them to the house at Sefton Park, which was in fact his daughter's, so that his proper family and friends were unaware of their existence. 
Rosamund Larne was one of those precarious ladies who make uncertain incomes by writing full-bodied storiettes. In the most dismal circumstances, she enjoyed a buoyancy bordering on the indecent, which always amused old Haythorpe's cynicism. But of his grandchildren, Phyllis and Jock, wild as colts, he had become fond, and this chance of getting six thousand pounds settled on them at a stroke had seemed to him nothing but heaven sent. As things were, if he went off, and of course he might at any moment, there wouldn't be a penny for them, for he would cut up a good fifteen thousand to the bad. He was now giving them some three hundred a year out of his fees, and the dead directors unfortunately earned no fees. Six thousand pounds at four and a half percent, settled so that their mother couldn't blew it, would give them a certain two hundred and fifty pounds a year, better than beggary. And the more he thought, the better he liked it, if only that shaky chap, Joe Pillin, didn't shy off when he'd bitten his nails short over it. Four evenings later, the shaky chap had again appeared at his house in Sefton Park. I've, I've thought it over, Sylvanus. I don't like it. No, but you'll do it. It's a sacrifice. Fifty-four thousand for four ships. It means a considerable reduction in my income. It means security, my boy. Well, there is that. But you know, I certainly can't be party to a secret commission. If it came out, think of my name, and goodness knows what. It won't come out. Yes, yes, so you say, but... All you've got to do is to execute a settlement on some third parties that I'll name. I'm not going to take a penny of it myself. Get your own lawyer to draw it up, and make him trustee. You can sign it when the purchase has gone through. I'll trust you, Joe. What stock have you got that gives four and a half percent? Midland... That'll do. You needn't sell. Yes, but who are these people? Woman and her children I want to do a good turn to. What a face the fellow had made. Afraid of being connected with a woman, Joe? Yes, you may laugh. I am afraid of being connected with someone else's woman. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I've not led your life, Sylvanus. Lucky for you, You've been dead long ago. Tell your lawyer it's an old flame of yours, you old dog. Yes, th there is it once, you see. I, I might be subject to blackmail. Tell him to keep it dark, and just pay over the income, quarterly. I don't like it, Sylvanus. I don't like it. Then leave it and be hanged to you. Have a cigar. You know I never smoke. Is there no other way? Yes, sell stock in London, bank the proceeds there, and bring me six thousand pounds in notes. I'll hold them till after the general meeting. If the thing doesn't go through, I'll hand them back to you. No, I like that even less. Rather I trusted you, huh? No, not at all, Sylvanus, not at all. But it's all playing round the law. There's no law to prevent you doing what you like with your money. What I do's nothing to you. And mind you, I'm taking nothing from it, not a mag. 
You assist the widowed and the fatherless. Just your line, Joe." "What a fellow you are, Sylvanus! You don't seem capable of taking anything seriously." "Care killed the cat." Left alone after this second interview, he had thought, "The beggar'll jump." And the beggar had. That settlement was drawn and only awaited signature. The board to-day had decided on the purchase, and all that remained was to get it ratified at the general meeting. Let him but get that over, and this provision for his grandchildren made, and he would snap his fingers at Brownbee and his crew, the canting humbugs. Hope you have many years of this before you, as if they cared for anything but his money, their money, rather. And becoming conscious of the length of his reverie, he grasped the arms of his chair, heaved at his own bulk in an effort to rise, growing redder and redder in face and neck. It was one of the hundred things his doctor had told him not to do for fear of apoplexy. The humbug! Why didn't Farney or one of those young fellows come and help him up? To call out was undignified. But was he to sit there all night? Three times he failed, and after each failure sat motionless again, crimson and exhausted. The fourth time he succeeded, and slowly made for the office. Passing through, he stopped and said in his extinct voice, "'You young gentlemen had forgotten me.' "'Mr. Farney said you didn't wish to be disturbed, sir.' Uh, "'Very good of him. Give me my hat and coat.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Thank you. What time is it?' Six o'clock, sir.' "'Tell Mr. Farney to come and see me to-morrow at noon, about my speech for the general meeting.' "'Yes, sir. Good night to you.' "'Good night, sir.' At his tortoise gate he passed between the office stools to the door, opened it feebly, and slowly vanished. Shutting the door behind him, a clerk said, "'Poor old chairman, he's on his last.' Another answered, "'Gosh, he's a tough old bulk. He'll go down fightin'." Issuing from the offices of the Island Navigation Company, Sylvanus Haythorpe moved towards the corner whence he always took tram to Sefton Park. The crowded street had all that prosperous air of catching or missing something which characterizes the town where London and New York and Dublin meet. Old Haythorpe had to cross to the far side, and he sallied forth without regard to traffic. That snail-like passage had in it a touch of the sublime. The old man seemed saying, Knock me down and be damned to you. I'm not going to hurry. His life was saved perhaps ten times a day by the British character at large, compounded of phlegm and a liking to take something under its protection. The tram conductors on that line were especially used to him, never failing to catch him under the arms and heave him like a sack of coals, while with trembling hands he pulled hard at the rail and strap. All right, sir? Thank you. He moved into the body of the tram, where somebody would always get up from kindness and the fear that he might sit down on them, and there he stayed motionless, his little eyes tight closed. With his red face, tuft of white hairs above his square cleft block of shaven chin, and his big high-crowned bowler hat, which yet seemed too petty for his head with its thick hair, he looked like some kind of an idol dug up and decked out in a gear 
a size too small. One of those voices of young men from public schools and exchanges where things are bought and sold said, How do you do, Mr. Haythorpe? Old Haythorpe opened his eyes. That sleek cub, Joe Pillin's son. What a young pup with his round eyes and his round cheeks and his little moustache, his fur coat, his spats, his diamond pin. How's your father, he said. Thanks, rather below par, worrying about his ships. Suppose you haven't any news for him, sir. Old Haythorpe nodded. The young man was one of his pet abominations, embodying all the complacent, little-headed mediocrity of this new generation, natty fellows all turned out of the same mold, sippers and tasters, chaps without drive or capacity, without even vices, and he did not intend to gratify the cub's curiosity. "'Come to my house,' he said. "'I'll give you a note for him.' Uh, thanks. I'd like to cheer the old man up.' The old man. Cheeky brat! And closing his eyes, he relapsed into immobility. The tram wound and ground its upward way, and he mused. When he was that cub's age, twenty-eight or whatever it might be, he had done most things, been up Vesuvius, driven four in hand, lost his last penny on the Derby and won it back on the Oaks, known all the dancers and operatic stars of the day, fought a duel with a Yankee at Dieppe, and winged him for saying, through his confounded nose, that old England was played out, been a controlling voice already in his shipping firm, drunk five other of the best men in London under the table, broken his neck steeplechasing, shot a burglar in the legs, been nearly drowned for a bet, killed Snipe in Chelsea, been to court for his sins, stared a ghost out of countenance, and travelled with a lady of Spain. If this young pup had done the last, it would be all he had, and yet no doubt he would call himself a spark. The conductor touched his arm. Here you are, sir. Thank you. He lowered himself to the ground, and moved in the bluish darkness towards the gate of his daughter's house. Bob Pillin walked beside him, thinking, Poor old Josser, he is getting a back number and he said, I should have thought you ought to drive, sir. My old governor would knock it up at once if he went about in a night like this. The answer rumbled out of the misty air, Your father's got no chest, never had. Bob Pillin gave vent to one of those fat cackles which come so readily from a certain type of man, and old Haythorpe thought, laughing at his father, Parrot! They had reached the porch. A woman with dark hair and a thin straight face and figure was arranging some flowers in the hall. She turned and said, "'You really ought not to be so late, father. It's wicked at this time of year.' "'Who is it? Oh, Mr. Pillin, how do you do? Have you had tea? Won't you come to the drawing-room? Or, or do you want to see my father?' "'Ah, that thanks. I, I believe your father,' and he thought, by Jove, the old chap is a caution, for old Haythorpe was crossing the hall without having paid the faintest attention to his daughter. Murmuring again, Thanks, awfully. He wants to give me something. He followed. Miss Haythorpe was not his style at all. 
He had a kind of dread of that thin woman who looked as if she could never be unbuttoned. They said she was a great churchgoer and all that sort of thing. In his sanctum, old Haythorpe had moved to his writing-table, and was evidently anxious to sit down. "'Shall I give you a hand, sir?' Receiving a shake of the head, Bob Pillin stood by the fire and watched. The old sport liked to paddle his own canoe. Fancy having to lower yourself into a chair like that. When an old Johnny got to such a state, it was really a mercy when he snuffed out, and made way for younger men. How his companies could go on putting up with such a fossil for a chairman was a marvel. The fossil rumbled, and said in that almost inaudible voice, "'I suppose you're beginning to look forward to your father's shoes?' Bob Pillin's mouth opened. The voice went on, "'Dibs and no responsibility. Tell him from me to drink port. Add five years to his life.' To this unwarranted attack, Bob Pillin made no answer, save a laugh. He perceived that a manservant had entered the room. "'A Mrs. Larne, sir. Will you see her?' At this announcement the old man seemed to try and start. Then he nodded and held out the note he had written. Bob Pillin received it together with the impression of a murmur which sounded like, "'Scratch a pole! Pole!' And passing the fine figure of a woman in a fur coat, who seemed to warm the air as she went by, he was in the hall again before he perceived that he had left his hat. A young and pretty girl was standing on the bearskin before the fire, looking at him with round-eyed innocence. He thought, this is better, I mustn't disturb them for my hat. And approaching the fire, he said, jolly cold, isn't it? The girl smiled, yes, jolly. He noticed that she had a large bunch of violets in her breast, a lot of fair hair, a short straight nose, and round blue-gray eyes, very frank and open. Mm, he said, I've left my hat in there. What larks! And at her little clear laugh something moved within Bob Pillin. You know this house well? She shook her head. But it's rather scrummy, isn't it? Bob Pillin, who had never yet thought so, answered, Quite okay. The girl threw up her head to laugh again. Okay? What's that? Bob Pillin saw her white round throat and thought, she is a ripper, and he said with a certain desperation, My name's Pillin. Yours is Larne, isn't it? Are you a relation here? He's our guardy. Isn't he a chook? That rumbling whisper like, Scratch a pole, pole, recurred to Bob Pillin. He said, with reservation, You know him better than I do. Oh, aren't you his grandson or something? Bob Pillin did not cross himself. Lord, no! My dad's an old friend of his, that's all. Is your dad like him? Not much. What a pity! It would have been lovely if they had been Tweedles. Bob Pillin thought, This bit is something new. I wonder what her Christian name is. And he said, What did your godfather and godmothers in your baptism? The girl laughed. She seemed to laugh at everything. Phyllis! Could he say, is my only joy? Better keep it, but for what? He couldn't see her again if he didn't look out. And he said, I live at the last house in the park, the red one. Do you know it? Do you know it? Where do you? 
Oh, a long way, 23 Millicent Villas. It's a pokey little house. I hate it. We have awful larks, though. Who are we? Mother and myself and Jock. He's an awful boy. You can't conceive what an awful boy he is. He's got nearly red hair. I think he'll be just like Guardy when he gets old. He's awful. Bob Pillin murmured, I should like to see him. Would you? I'll ask Mother if you can. You won't want to again. He goes off all the time like a squib. She threw back her head, and again Bob Pillin felt a little giddy. He collected himself and drawled, Are you going in to see your guardy? No, Mother's got something special to say. We've never been here before, you see. Isn't he fun, though? Fun? I think he's the greatest lark, but he's awfully nice to me. Jock calls him the last of the Stoicans. A voice called from old Haythorpe's den, Phyllis. It had a particular ring, that voice, as if coming from beautifully formed red lips, of which the lower one must curve the least bit over. It had, too, a caressing vitality, and a kind of warm falsity. The girl threw a laughing look back over her shoulder, and vanished through the door into the room. Bob Pillin remained with his back to the fire, and his puppy round eyes fixed on the air that her figure had last occupied. He was experiencing a sensation never felt before. Those travels with the Lady of Spain, charitably conceded him by old Haythorpe, had so far satisfied the emotional side of this young man. They had stopped short at Brighton and Scarborough, and been preserved from even the slightest intrusion of love. A calculated and hygienic career had caused no anxiety either to himself or his father, and this sudden swoop of something more than admiration gave him an uncomfortable, choky feeling just above his high round collar, and in the temples a sort of buzzing, those first symptoms of chivalry. A man of the world does not, however, succumb without a struggle and if his hat had not been out of reach, who knows whether he would not have left the house hurriedly, saying to himself, No, no, my boy, Millicent Villas is hardly your form when your intentions are honourable. For somehow that round and laughing face, bob of glistening hair, those wide-opened grey eyes, refused to awaken the beginnings of other intentions. Such is the effect of youth and innocence on even the steadiest young men. With a kind of moral stammer he was thinking, "'Can I? D dare I offer to see them to their tram? Couldn't I even nip out and get the car round and send them home in it?' "'No, I might miss them. Better stick it out here. What a jolly laugh! What a tipping face! Strawberries and cream, hay and all that! Millicent Villas!' And he wrote it on his cuff. The door was opening. He heard that warm, vibrating voice. Come along, Phyllis, the girl's laugh, so high and fresh. Right-o, coming! And with perhaps the first real tremor he had ever known, he crossed to the front door. All the more chivalrous to escort them to the tram without a hat. And suddenly he heard, I've got your hat, young man. And her mother's voice, warm and simulating shock, Phyllis, you awful girl! 
Did you ever see such an awful girl, Mr. Pillin, mother? And then, he did not quite know how, insulated from the January air by laughter and the scent of fur and violets, he was between them, walking to their tram. It was like an experience out of the Arabian Nights, or something of that sort, an intoxication which made one say one was going their way, though one would have to come all the way back in the same beastly tram. Nothing so warming had ever happened to him as sitting between them on that drive, so that he forgot the note in his pocket, and his desire to relieve the anxiety of the old man, his father. At the tram's terminus they all got out. There issued a purr of invitation to come and see them some time, a clear, Jock'll love to see you, a low laugh, oh, you awful girl, and a flashing of cunning zigzagged across his brain. Taking off his hat, he said, Thanks awfully, rather, and put his foot back on the step of the tram. Thus did he delicately expose the depths of his chivalry. Oh, you said you were going our way. What wonners you do tell! Oh! The words were as music, the sight of those eyes growing rounder, the most perfect he had ever seen, and Mrs. Larne's low laugh, so warm yet so preoccupied, and the tips of the girl's fingers waving back above her head. He heaved a sigh, and knew no more till he was seated at his club before a bottle of champagne. Home? Not he. He wished to drink and dream. The old man would get his news all right tomorrow. The words, a Mrs. Larne to see you, sir, had been of a nature to astonish weaker nerves. What had brought her here? She knew she mustn't come. Old Haythorpe had watched her entrance with cynical amusement. The way she whiffed herself at that young pup in passing, the way her eyes slid around. He had a very just appreciation of his son's widow, and a smile settled deep between his chin-tuft and his moustache. She lifted his hand, kissed it, pressed it to her splendid bust, and said, So here I am at last, you see. Aren't you surprised? Old Haythorpe shook his head. I really had to come to see you, Guardy. We haven't had a sight of you for such an age. And in this awful weather, how are you, dear old Guardy? Never better. And watching her green-gray eyes, he added, haven't a penny for you. Her face did not fall. She gave her feather laugh. How dreadful of you to think I came for that. But I am in an awful fix, Guardy. Never knew you not to be. Just let me tell you, dear. It'll be some relief. I'm having the most terrible time. She sank into a low chair, disengaging an overpowering scent of violets, while melancholy struggled to subdue her face and body. The most awful fix. I expect to be sold up any moment. We may be on the streets tomorrow. I daren't tell the children. They're so happy, poor darlings. I shall be obliged to take Jock away from school, and Phyllis will have to stop her piano and dancing. It's an absolute crisis, and all due to those Midland Syndicate people. I've been counting on at least two hundred for my new story, and the wretches have refused it.
With a tiny handkerchief she removed one tear from the corner of one eye. "It is hard, Guardy. I worked my brain silly over that story." From old Heythorp came a mutter which sounded suspiciously like "Rats!" Heaving a sigh which conveyed nothing but the generosity of her breathing apparatus, Mrs. Larne went on: "You couldn't, I suppose, let me have just one hundred?" "Not a bob!" She sighed again, her eyes slid round the room, then in her warm voice she murmured, "Guardy, you were my dear Philip's father, weren't you? I've never said anything, but of course you were. He was so like you, and so is Jock." Nothing moved in old Haythorpe's face. No pagan image consulted with flowers and song and sacrifice could have returned less answer. Her old Philip! She had led him the devil of a life, for he was a Dutchman. And what the deuce made her suddenly trot out the skeleton like this? But Mrs. Larne's eyes were still wandering. What a lovely house! You know, I think you ought to help me, Guardy. Just imagine if your grandchildren were thrown out into the street. The old man grinned. He was not going to deny his relationship. It was her lookout, not his. But neither was he going to let her rush him. And they will be. You couldn't look on and see it. Do come to my rescue this once. You really might do something for them." With a rumbling sigh he answered, "'Wait. Can't give you a penny now. Poor as a church mouse.' "'Oh, Guardy! Fact!' Mrs. Larne heaved one of her most buoyant sighs. She certainly did not believe him. "'Well,' she said, "'you'll be sorry when we come round one night and sing for pennies under your window. Wouldn't you like to see Phyllis? I left her in the hall. She's growing such a sweet girl. Guardy, just fifty. Not a rap. Mrs. Larne threw up her hands. Well, you'll repent it. I'm at my last gasp. She sighed profoundly, and the perfume of violets escaped in a cloud. Then getting up, she went to the door and called, Phyllis! When the girl entered, old Haythorpe felt the nearest approach to a flutter of the heart for many years. She had put her hair up. She was like a spring day in January. Such a relief from that scented humbug her mother. Pleasant the touch of her lips on his forehead, the sound of her clear voice, the sight of her slim movements, the feeling that she did him credit. Clean-run stock, she and that young scamp jock, better than the holy woman his daughter Adela would produce, if anyone were ever fool enough to marry her or that pragmatical fellow his son Ernest. And when they were gone, he reflected with added zest on the six thousand pounds he was getting for them out of Joe Pillin and his ships. He would have to pitch it strong in his speech at the general meeting. With freight so low, there was bound to be opposition. No dash nowadays, nothing but gabby caution. They were a scrim-shanking lot on the board, he had had to pull them round one by one, the deuce of a tug getting this thing through. And yet the business was sound enough. Those ships would earn money properly handled, good money. His valet, coming in to prepare him for dinner, found him asleep. He had for the old man as much admiration as may be felt for one who cannot put his own trousers on. 
he would say to the housemaid Molly, "He's a game old blighter. Must have been a rare one in his day. Cocks his hat at you even now, I see." To which the girl, Irish and pretty, would reply, "Well, and sure, I don't mind if it gives him a pleasure. Tis better anyway than the sad eye I get from herself." At dinner, old Haythorp always sat at one end of the rosewood table, and his daughter at the other. It was the eminent moment of the day. With napkin tucked high into his waistcoat, he gave himself to the meal with passion. His palate was undimmed, his digestion unimpaired. He could still eat as much as two men and drink more than one, and while he savored each mouthful, he never spoke if he could help it. The holy woman had nothing to say that he cared to hear, and he nothing to say that she cared to listen to. She had a horror too of what she called. The pleasures of the table, those lusts of the flesh. She was always longing to dock his grub. He knew, would see her further first. What other pleasures were there at his age? Let her wait till she was eighty. But she never would be too thin and holy. This evening, however, with the advent of the partridge, she did speak. Who were your visitors, father? Trust her for nosing anything out. Fixing his little blue eyes on her, he mumbled with a very full mouth, "Ladies." So I saw. What ladies? He had a longing to say, "Part of one of my families under the rose." As a fact, it was the best part of the only one, but the temptation to multiply exceedingly was almost overpowering. He checked himself, however, and went on eating partridge. His secret irritation crimsoning his cheeks. And he watched her eyes, those cold, precise, and round gray eyes, noting it, and knew she was thinking, "He eats too much." She said, "Sorry, I'm not considered fit to be told. You ought not to be drinking hock." Old Haythorp took up the long green glass, drained it, and repressing fumes and emotion, went on with his partridge. His daughter pursed her lips. Took a sip of water and said, "I know their name is Larn, but it conveyed nothing to me. Perhaps it's just as well." The old man, mastering a spasm, said with a grin, "My daughter-in-law and my granddaughter." What? Ernest married? Oh, nonsense! He chuckled and shook his head. Then do you mean to say, father, that you were married before you married my mother? No. The expression on her face was as good as a play. She said with a sort of disgust, "Not married? I see. I suppose those people are hanging round your neck then. No wonder you're always in difficulties. Are there any more of them?" Again the old man suppressed that spasm, and the veins in his neck and forehead swelled alarmingly. If he had spoken, he would infallibly have choked. He ceased eating, and putting his hands on the table, tried to raise himself. He could not, and subsiding in his chair, sat glaring at the stiff, quiet figure of his daughter. Don't be silly, father, and make a scene before Meller. Finish your dinner. He did not answer. He was not going to sit there to be dragooned and insulted. His helplessness had never so weighed on him before. 
It was like a revelation, a log that had to put up with anything, a log. And waiting for his valet to return, he cunningly took up his fork. In that saintly voice of hers, she said, I suppose you don't realize that it's a shock to me. I don't know what Ernest will think. Ernest be damned. I do wish, father, you wouldn't swear. Old Haythorpe's rage found vent in a sort of rumble. How the devil had he gone on all these years in the same house with that woman, dining with her day after day? But the servant had come back now, and putting down his fork, he said, Help me up. The man paused, thunderstruck, with the souffle balanced. To leave dinner unfinished? It was a portent. Help me up. Mr. Haythorpe's not very well, Meller. Take his other arm. The old man shook off her hand. I'm very well. Help me up. Dine in my own room in future. Raised to his feet, he walked slowly out but in his sanctum he did not sit down, obsessed by this first overwhelming realization of his helplessness. He stood swaying a little, holding on to the table, till the servant, having finished serving dinner, brought in his port. "'Are you waiting to sit down, sir?' He shook his head. Hang it, he could do that for himself, anyway. He must think of something to fortify his position against that woman. And he said, send me molly yes sir the man put down the port and went old haythorpe filled his glass drank and filled again he took a cigar from the box and lighted it the girl came in a gray-eyed dark-haired damsel and stood with her hands folded her head a little to one side her lips a little parted the old man said you're a human being well i would hope so sir I'm going to ask you something as a human being, not a servant. See? No, sir, but I will be glad to do anything you like. Then put your nose in here every now and then to see if I want anything. Meller goes out sometimes. Don't say anything. Just put your nose in. Oh, and I will. Tis a pleasure. Twill be to do it. He nodded, and when she had gone, lowered himself into his chair with a sense of appeasement. Pretty girl! Comfort to see a pretty face, not a pale, peaky thing like Adela's. His anger burned up anew. So she counted on his helplessness, had begun to count on that, had she? She should see that there was life in the old dog yet. And his sacrifice of the uneaten souffle the still less eaten mushrooms, the peppermint sweet with which he usually concluded dinner, seemed to consecrate that purpose. They all thought he was a hulk without a shot left in the locker. He had seen a couple of them at the board that afternoon shrugging at each other as though saying, Look at him! And young Farney pitying him. Pity, forsooth! and that coarse-grained solicitor chap at the creditors' meeting curling his lip as much as to say, one foot in the grave. He had seen the clerks dousing the glim of their grins, and that young pup Bob Pillin screwing up his supercilious mug over his dog-collar. He knew that scented humbug Rosamund 
was getting scared that he'd drop off before she'd squeezed him dry, and his valet was always looking him up and down queerly. As to that holy woman, not quite so fast, not quite so fast, and filling his glass for the fourth time, he slowly sucked down the dark red fluid with the old boots flavor which his soul loved, and drawing deep at his cigar, closed his eyes. End of Part One